Father Janico, you are a Jesuit from the Philippines and you are over here in Ireland giving a three-day workshop, international workshop to people from across Europe and beyond on behalf of the Irish Jesuits. And you are talking about, from your own experience, a way of education that you have developed called learning by refraction. Now, can you talk to me about what learning by refraction is and why we need it? So we developed this framework for teaching and learning, which we've called learning by refraction. But it's by no means original. It's really an improvement or an updating of Ignatian pedagogy. Because when I was sent to work in school many years ago, I realized that a lot of the teachers in our country, in the Philippines, were taking Ignatian pedagogy seriously, but they felt it was a burden. It was something add-on. So to teach in the Ignatian way was also another extra thing I have to learn to do with the pupils. And what was teaching in the Ignatian way that, and why was it burdensome? Well, the Ignatian pedagogical paradigm sort of offers five elements that a teacher should be mindful of when designing and running a class. No? So the first is to be mindful of the context of the students. No? We have a Latin phrase called uh, cura personalis, where we want to offer personal care for the individual student. Right. And of course, knowing the context of the student yeah. makes all the difference. No? So, so Ignatian pedagogy reminds the teacher to be mindful of the context of the student. But aside from that, it talks about the cycle of experience, mm-hmm. the experience that the students go through in class, and the opportunity to reflect on that experience, that's where the learning happens. And of course, to apply what they've learned in action. So action will be the fourth element. Yeah. And the fifth element is simply evaluation, where the teacher looks back at the learning cycle and decides whether things went well or things can be improved or things need to be retaught. You know, So that's Ignatian pedagogy. But I felt that a lot of our teachers in the school where I was working were quite devoted to it. They felt it was something important. Yeah. It was the very thing we needed to brand the learning and teaching in the Jesuit school. The problem was they felt it was an add-on and they weren't particularly convinced that it was helping them teach better. So we thought we had a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we thought, we're, supposed, we're a Jesuit school, we're supposed to be doing Ignatian pedagogy. We've got to wrestle with this question and take it seriously. Because I suppose in one way, would they have had to, like, they were in state schools as well, I presume, some of them, maybe some private, but that they had to teach the pupil to get good marks. Is that it and good results? That's absolutely part of the issue. And in particular, in the Philippines, our problem was with a very cluttered curriculum. So a teacher had to rush through the whole thing. And the last thing you want is to spend time and waste time on reflection, yeah. which is so important in Ignatian pedagogy. So all our teachers, based on their own confession, admitted that they were paying lip service to Ignatian pedagogy. But when you go to the classroom, you know, the teachers tended to sort of just cover the matter. One phenomenon that I, that I noticed immediately is that our teachers would speak normally during the year. But towards the end of the term, they would speak faster and faster <laughs> because they wanted to cover the yeah, matter, yeah. right? Yeah, and that's a common problem right. across the world, yeah. I think. Uh, giving a lecture is the most efficient way of teaching by telling, really. But that's not what Ignatian pedagogy asks for, you know. Ignatian pedagogy sort of encourages a teacher to create the opportunity for students to do the reflecting on their own. And that takes time. Yeah. That takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of designing. And chiding, you have to chide the students to reflect. 
and you have to teach them how to reflect. So, so we had a problem. We thought, let's why don't we put our heads together and just sort of face the problem and try to figure things out. So that's what that's that's how it all began. This project on learning by refraction. We thought uh, we we need to sort of update Ignatian pedagogy. We need to look at our context and see what the issues were. So we spoke to our teachers. We spoke to our colleagues all over Asia Pacific. We consulted experts, and we started training ourselves and offering workshops to our teachers. So all the lessons learned all these many years, we've sort of decided to put together in a book which we've decided to call Learning by Refraction. The book was published last year, which was the 25th anniversary of the publication of the seminal document, Ignatian Pedagogy, A Practical Mm -hmm. Approach. And uh, we could have called it Ignatian Pedagogy, but we thought people would just roll their eyes and say, here we go again. again, So we wanted to do something sexier, something (laughs) that that meant something different, that would encourage teachers to look at Ignatian Pedagogy in a different way. So we started racking our brains. Oh, what's a good name? What's a nice name that will capture the spirit of Indonesian mm. pedagogy? And finally, we ended up with learning by refraction. And there's a whole story there. Do you want me to get into oh, it? Well, I'd love to know because the only thing I know about refraction is a light refracting right. all different colors when it, yeah. you shine something <clears throat> through a prism. So do tell me how it became learning by refraction. Well, the dictionary meaning of refraction is precisely that, how, how light is bent when it goes through a medium, you know, light waves, sound waves, it, they change when they go through a medium. That's why when we're standing in the pool, immersed in water, our feet look closer to us than they actually are. are no? And the other meaning of refraction is when you go to an eye doctor, the eye doctor refracts the lenses to find the right uh, grade for your eyes. If you're nearsighted, he'll check with you and so on and so forth. So we thought, hey, that sounds like a good name because we don't really want students to reflect everything the teacher gives them 100%. We don't want to memorize everything and vomit everything up during examination. We want them to change the content. We want them to make it their own. So much like a light that goes through a medium and is changed in the process, we want our students to change what they hear from the teachers, you know, and, and add to it, enrich it with their own experience, with their own insights. So we thought refraction might be a better word, you know. And the other thing is that learning, of course, is all trial and error, which is what the eye doctor does. And the feedback you give the eye doctor makes all the difference, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a terrible patient. I always give the wrong feedback to the doctor. <laughs> so it takes us forever to, to get the right grades. But, but if the teacher is able to give the right feedback to the student, the student will adjust in the same way that an eye doctor would adjust. So we thought that also kind of captures the process of learning. And finally, refraction sounds like the two main ingredients of Ignatian pedagogy, reflection and action. Oh, yeah. If you say them fast enough, <laughs> you might think, you'll say something that sounds like refraction. At first, we were toy- toying with the idea of coining a word like reflection, but it sounded like a disease, you know? So, so we thought we'd just stick to refraction. So that's, that's the story behind the title. We wanted a, a 21st century name for our tradition in Ignatian pedagogy, a name that would capture the defining ingredients of Ignatian pedagogy, and also will sort of already signal to the teacher the kind of learning that we want to promote through this pedagogy. So if you take then, as it's the 21st century, and nobody more than Ignatius would have approved of rooting whatever he was wanted the teaching process to be in the time that it's in, not for the 16th century or whatever, what do you see as the unique challenges in the 21st century for education and then we look then at what refraction can do in terms of, of approaching that cha- those challenges. Right. I, I think 
Uh, more than any other time in history, we're facing a lot of risks and dangers because of the internet, because of social media. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for technology, I'm a heavy user, but I think it's important for educators to be mindful of the risks and dangers. No? Um, I think the main danger is the art of thinking. It's an endangered art, you know, because social media does not lend itself to deep thinking. Um, social media encourages people to skim. Studies have shown that when we're reading using our tablet, our phone, or computer screen, if we're not mindful, if we're not careful, we end up skimming. We end up just rushing through things, you know. So uh, deep reading is not the natural inclination when we're using technology. It's possible if you make the effort. But if you're not conscious of it, you'll end up just skimming through rushing through things, you know. And because that, there's so much of it. There's so and, much and of it, And you're yeah. hyperlinked off to somewhere else right, and somewhere right, else, right. which at one level is wonderful, but as you say, at another level, you run the risk of becoming flat. Right, right. And, and, and the, the combination that the internet offers today is so dangerous because on the one hand, there's a lot of access to information. So you feel that you know, right? But there's absolutely no quality control. So... In all the stages of the history of education, at no other point has information been, been so accessible, but also not processed at all. So if you're not careful, you may actually think that just because you found it on the internet, it's true. You don't have to think. It's already there. And that's exactly what's going on. There was an experiment on Facebook when the designers of the experiment wanted to find out how many people would pass on an article without reading it. And what they did was, it's an interesting experiment, what they did was they they um, came up with an article with a lovely headline, with a lovely first paragraph, but the rest of it was gibberish. <laughs> Can you guess how many percent passed on the article? Well, if they're like me, probably a hundred. <laughs> well, close, 70%. 70%. Yeah. So people don't even read, you know. People are allergic to length, to complexity, you know. John Sayer, the former president of NYU, uh, said that we have developed an allergy to nuance and complexity, which is what thinking is all about, you know. So really, I think more than ever, the schools play a very important role in teaching our students not just the content, but how to think. And that's, I think that's the main uh, gift that um, Ignatian pedagogy and learning by refraction can offer our teachers. You know? Do you think, though, Johnny, that in some ways that was always the way, it's just that the availability of the internet has magnified the amount of information because often at school when I grew up we had no internet but we weren't always taught to evaluate. I mean if, if it was an authority in a history book you just took it that that was the authority and it wasn't until later that I realised well that historian had an agenda and that historian had an agenda. You know so there was a sense in which you swallowed wholesale what you got at right, school right, as well. Right, yeah. The fact is that it's been made more in your face because there is just so much of it now and therefore this does necessitate yeah. that we have to take seriously how to evaluate and right, discriminate right. what we're learning yeah. and in some ways that is a real challenge to educators rather than the old way of doing it where people just learn off by rote. Right. You're absolutely right. Thinking has always been hard work but the stakes have not been so high. Now the damage can be quite major and can happen so fast because of the social media. So the stakes are much higher now. Also, for example, before you just had to contend with people who disagreed with you in the neighborhood or in the class. But now you go to the internet and you see everyone's disagreeing with you. The authorities are disagreeing with one another. So there's a great temptation not to think 
because it requires a lot of work, you know. That's why I think the two main temptations of thinking today are on the one hand, fundamentalism, which is to hold on to the black and white mentality where everyone else is wrong except you and your authority. But the other the other option is relativism where we're anything all nice. Goes. Yeah, and, but anything goes and we don't think anymore. Everyone's right. Everyone's equally right. So those are the two temptations that we have to resist. And that's the challenge of the teacher today. How do we encourage our students not to hold on to security and certainty so that they become fundamentalists, but on the other hand, not to be too attached to political correctness either or harmony so that they don't think? It's a very countercultural thing yeah. to do. Added to that complication is that teachers have a curriculum. And they have to follow that, uh, even uh, like your earlier teachers who felt the burden. So what do you say to teachers today in your workshops about how do they do that, that they integrate the curriculum that they have to teach along with and the ability to learn some of those discriminatory skills and discernment skills Mm -hmm. that you're talking about? Well, you know, it's different in every place. So the best judge on how to go forward will be the teachers themselves. I always say that uh, what's important is that you become creative within the constraints that you're facing. You can't be creative in an absolute way. I think what's important is if the teacher realizes the problem and their mission given this problem, and they are given a repertoire of skills and strategies that they make the choices that they need to make, I can't prescribe what those choices are. I mean, I have a better idea of what the teachers can do in the Philippines, but it's certainly going to be different here in Ireland. But what I hope to do in this workshop is just to have a conversation with the teachers and offer them talking points, and hopefully we can learn from one another. And one of the things I'm hoping we will stumble into is a way forward, you know, given their context, given the constraints that they're they're facing in the educational system here. So give me an example of, say, at least even in the Philippines, or you, you've been an educator for many years now. How would you approach a student nowadays to help them to develop those skills that you're talking about of being able to discriminate and discern and evaluate? Well, you know, the usual default of teachers in the Philippines and many parts of the world is to give a lecture. You know? Giving a lecture is good because, A, it's very efficient. You know, you, you just tell them everything, right? And, B, you feel very intelligent because you know, you're giving a lecture, right? And you could be impressed with yourself giving a lecture, especially if you're articulate and all that. But, of course, the only person learning in class is the teacher, right? So this temptation of giving the right answer, of teaching by telling, is something I think teachers have to restrain themselves from doing all the time. There's a time and place for that. But perhaps there are opportunities when the teachers can sort of uh, restrain themselves from giving the answer and to think out loud and encourage students to do the same. Of course, this would entail creating a safe space that the students are feel that they're not going to be ridiculed, they're not going to be told they're wrong, you know. But I think, basically, I, I believe that the classroom should be a rehearsal for critical thinking. Yeah. And, and Ignatian pedagogy, or learning by refraction, lends itself very well to that because of its emphasis on reflection. So reflection is something that students should be given the opportunity to do. But at the same time, I think, given this day and age, we have to teach them how to reflect. I don't think we can assume that they know how. Even how do you teachers, do that? I think by modeling. First of all, there's a need for slowing down, which is already countercultural. There's a need to sort of own your own space and say that I'm going to listen to myself. I'm going to have a conversation with myself and to trust that this 
process, even if it's difficult or even uncomfortable at times, will will lead to something good, that they will learn how to think. So I think the first thing to overcome is our allergy to nuance and complexity. The reality is complex. It's mm-hmm. it's messy. It's beautifully messy. And that's the way it is. And we have to use thinking to model our way through it and make sense of the world, you know. We should throw away the myth that reality is very neat and, you know, black and white. On the other hand, we should also not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, we're never going to be 100% sure, so let's stop thinking, you know. So I, th- I think it's a, it, that's, that's the kind of thing that a, a teacher will have to do. A teacher will have to trust himself or herself in experimenting with this new method, you know. That's one way, I think. Yeah. And how important is it to get parental buy-in? Because the parent is part of the education process, and some of the things that I think can happen is that the teacher then is implementing something like this, and the parent is saying, my son needs these 600 points right. for the leaving cert, or he's right. never right. going to become right. a doctor. Right. And there she is, letting them wander and think about, is this right or is it not, and mm-hmm. what am I reflecting on? And I want him to get... His exams, and when that goes into an exam situation, that may count for nothing. Parental buy-in is it important? Oh, it's absolutely important. Yeah, it's important for the parents to understand what the teachers are trying to do. But you're absolutely right. It's important also to reassure them that we are not going to forget the test because whether that's one of the constraints I was talking about. I mean, I don't think a teacher can just say, "Oh, I'm a free spirit. I'm going to teach them how to think." But never mind your exams. You know, that's absolutely irresponsible. I think. So, yeah. So I think it's a question of reassuring the parents that we are still going to do the work that that needs to be done. But there's something far more important that's going to serve your kids better in the future that we have to sort of waste time on as well. Have you any examples yourself, like, you know, any stories where you saw a pupil or a student coming through, getting a breakthrough in your own experience? Well, I teach in the University of the Philippines and I teach a course called Science, Technology and Society, you know. And I've been trying to walk the talk, right? We, we talk about learner-centeredness. So I, I teach a class of 170 students, but it's a required course. You can imagine how difficult the recitation is. You know, It's going to be the usual suspects who are talking all the time and dominating the discussion. But the lovely thing is we have technology today. So one of the strategies I've used is I've asked them to tweet during or after class. So if they have a question or they, they see an article or a video that's related to the lecture, that they tweet it using a hashtag. And what I do is that I bring it to class. I, I choose a few. They, mm-hmm. they, they tweet a lot, you know, which is a good thing. Uh, the quality isn't always great, but at least I know they're thinking about the lectures, right? So, But I would pick uh, around five every class, at the beginning of every class, and respond to them. And, and they, they felt affirmed, you know. And, and I think as a result, they felt that I was serious about hearing from them. And I began to see a change in the behavior during recitation in class. At first, they were trying to guess what the right answer was. But now they were ready to experiment with their ideas. And I made sure to convince them that I was listening to them. I was always respectful. And I felt some of them really actually changed in the way they recited. Not everyone, but some of them began to explore ideas in a more courageous way, you know, and did not take things personally if their ideas were refuted. Now, I come from the Philippines. We're part of Asia, and in Asia, there's a great deference to authority. So for me, that was a real breakthrough. But I think creating that safe space in class, there was an author who made a distinction between the safety zone and the comfort zone. And I said, you know, there's a comfort zone and there's the safety zone, 
if you go beyond your comfort zone, it's still safe, you know, and to encourage them to step out of their comfort zone. And you have to show that. You also have to think out loud and revise your thoughts as you go along. And I think they appreciated that. So not everybody felt that way, I think. But I think a few of them began to see what we were trying to do in class. I'm thinking of the challenge that you have faced and you've worked on it and this is a very practical workbook that you've designed it's not a big reading you're follow- you are walking the talk again giving teachers things that they can do practically how difficult is it though in a situation where I'm going to talk about Ireland but where it almost feels like in terms of curriculum and in terms of what students have to study it's really relatively not any different from when there was an internet revolution and that in some way the authorities, if you like, have not really taken on that the whole landscape has changed so dramatically. Like at the end of the day, anything you need to know, you look it up. That's what the generation of my kids do. No matter what the question is, they have an answer because they're looking mm-hmm. it up. And therefore the kind of curriculum that hasn't really changed right, that much right, yeah. really militates against them doing the kind of things you're doing so do you think there is a challenge for governments and for educationists to really be saying, we've got to change and change dramatically? Yeah, you're right. That's the same problem in the Philippines. It's, it's in the system, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and you, you see it most clearly in the way they test the students. Because if we want changes in the way teachers teach, you have to change the testing, you know. If the testing is all about content, recall and all that, then... Anything the teacher does will not be valued. There's a saying in education that if you treasure it, you should measure it. So if you treasure critical thinking, it should be measured in the test. But that's not what's being done. There are certain places, I think, um, where there are efforts. But in general, you're absolutely right. That's the problem. But we can't wait for that day, not doing anything. You know, So we're hoping that the teachers on their own will take the initiative to look for those pockets of opportunities where they can at least make a little difference in their students' education, uh, working within the constraints. And that's a real challenge. It's difficult. I know that, you know. And teachers are the busiest people, you know. So it's hard. But because it's hard, it's important to do. So this workbook will be a great help. And also the workshop that you will be giving. The book is a fruit of many workshops that you have given. Has the feedback been positive down the years? And I presume you've learned from that feedback and incorporated Mm -hmm. it? The book just came out for a year. So it takes a while to get the reception going. But what I immediately noticed was there's a great need for it, you know, because so far we've had a lot of documents and great references, but they're all scholarly. They're not practitioner-oriented. We, w- we wanted this to be unapologetically practitioner-oriented. Being a practitioner myself, most of the time I don't have time to go through volumes of books. And the, the workbook offers several activities for the teacher to just learn on his own or her own or learn with a group of colleagues. Uh, the book can provide a menu of activities for workshops, you know. And basically the idea there is for teachers to reflect on their practice. That's where the learning will come from. So the book offers a lot of conversation pieces, hopefully to provoke thought and talk among themselves. And hopefully they will decide what's the best way to move forward. We don't know how they they should implement this in their context. The teachers are the best judge for that. So we're hoping that they will be able to do that. And it doesn't have to just be Jesuit-oriented. I presume the principles here are valuable 
for other teachers who want to promote the kind of values that you're talking about in their students. And I noticed that one of the people evaluating the book for you said it's a spiritual approach at the very end. Mm -hmm. What, What do you think he meant by that? Well, I, I think he's referring to the fact that Ignatian pedagogy is basically based on the principles of the spiritual exercises. You know, at the end of the day, the cycle of experience, reflection, and action was really based on Ignatian discernment. We don't just react; but before we act, we have to reflect on the experience. And this applies not only to learning but also to the spiritual life. He's referring to Ignatian discernment as the backbone of Ignatian pedagogy.